From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. So as the introvert of the group, I have no idea what it means to be an amplifier. Can uh, I know, Cameron, you're, you're an amplifier. What can I do to, you know, I am shy. Uh, I'll be real. <laughs> but how can I incorporate some amplifier tools in my Civic Season toolbox? You know, I think being an amplifier isn't always about being in front of a crowd and sort of capturing everyone's imagination and attention. But I think one valuable skill that I see as an amplifier is being able to be that translator. I think one of the key skills that, you know, I bring to the table as a civically engaged person is being able to translate, you know, all of the noise that's happening online, that's in the news, and being able to have a clear conversation with someone. Yes. Come on, amplifier. (laughs) My number one was Defender, but my number two was Amplifier. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would have gotten Amplifier because I feel like I see the value in spreading the word and making sure everybody knows what's going on. But in your opinion, as a certified Amplifier, (laughs) (laughs) what do you think is the difference between Defender and an amplifier. With being a defender, you sort of naturally have those amplifier skills because, you know, when you're out protesting or you're out, you know, defending people's rights and defending equality, you need to be able to convey what you're doing to everyone around you and being able to mobilize all of these people around your movement. The amplifying bits come through when you're organizing the people. You know, maybe naturally, you're a defender, but as being an organizer, you need those amplifying skills to get people to rally around you. So as you might have guessed, in this episode of Democracy Vibe Check, we're all about amplifiers. I'm Cameron Katz, an amplifier. I'm Gabriel Cruz, and my civic superpower is Nurture. And I'm your friendly neighborhood defender, Maggie Bell. This is Democracy Vibe Check, a partnership between WABE and Made by Us to help you discover your story and engage in civic season, a new American tradition between Juneteenth and July 4th. Civic season is a tradition to help us grapple with our nation's promises and our practices, and history is the key. Civic season is all about using knowledge of the past to power our future. So if you haven't figured out your civic superpower yet, there's a link to the quiz in the show notes. It's quick, and you'll learn about other important figures in history who share your civic superpower. Then we want you to tell us about it and the historical figure you resonate with. Click on the Share with Civic Season link in the show notes to add your voice to the conversation. All right, so we talked about it at the top a little, but what is an amplifier? That's a good question. I think the Civic Superpower Quiz defines amplifiers as people who capture the imagination of the public and are the ones who translate ideas into something people who are not knee-deep in the work can understand and get behind. It makes a lot of sense, Cameron, that you're the amplifier in our group as you're the community engagement manager with Made By Us. Yeah, and that's a skill that I've really have had to work on at Made By Us. You know, when I first started, it's really hard to 
go from the academic side of history, which is, you know, I was sort of a recent graduate and was very entrenched in the academia side of it. But then moving into the public history area of being able to, you know, take really, you know, nuanced ideas in history and being able to convey them on social media. Part of my work with Made by Us has made me more of an amplifier than I might have been otherwise. We've referenced the Civic Superpower Quiz quite a bit already. And one thing that I just find really cool about the quiz is how it matches you up with historical figures who shared your superpower, sort of giving you some inspo from the past. Um, And I know that, you know, both of you aren't amplifiers, but we can always be inspired by, you know, people who made a difference in the past. So Maggie, who's an amplifier in history who inspires you? Yes, I was so glad to see Ida B. Wells be on the list. Yes. Um, The work that she did, the investigative research that she did around um, Mm anti-lynching and publishing her book around that research to make sure that people in the community understood, like, what is really going on in the South was and continues to be super impactful Mm -hmm. um, when we move forward in, like, organizing um, and community advocacy. So... Her literally taking the time to say, this is a problem. This is what's going on in the South. Um, I am a black woman and I can do the research and share this information um, with people who look like me, but also tell the story and the real truths of lynching, um, racism, slavery, discrimination is super powerful. It is. And, you know, she was really involved in voting rights work, too. Yes. So. Yes. You guys are alike in that way. Shout out to Ida B. Wells. Thank you, Queen. <laughs> Gabe, what about you? Yeah, Rachel Carson, the author of uh, Silent Spring. Her work was centered around translating these complex environmental science topics for the people. Can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a barrage of poisons on the surface of the earth without making it unfit for all life? They should not be called insecticides, but biocides. And although she wasn't in the foreground of the movement, her work was key for the environmental movement in the 1960s. So since you can't identify with yourself as one of the amplifiers, what? which historical figure did you identify with? I think I would have to pick Frederick Douglass. He's sort of the, the one leading the charge on our amplifiers here. He was very influential in the anti-slavery abolition movement. He was a formerly enslaved man who escaped and spent the rest of his life sort of advocating for racial equality. And he was very well known for his eloquent speeches. He really challenged a lot of stereotypes about black people at the time. And one of my favorite fun facts about Frederick Douglass is he's actually considered to be the most photographed person in the 19th century, more than Abraham Lincoln even, because he would always try to dress in a very prestigious way and present himself in a very sophisticated manner on camera and would try to distribute those photographs all around the United States to challenge stereotypes about black men at the time. Um, So he was an amplifier in many, many ways. All right. So we are going to take a quick break. But after that, Maggie, Gabriel and I will go through some of the prompts from the Civic Season Guide, which is linked in the show notes. And that'll be one way that you can explore being an amplifier. Because all the superpowers are necessary to make that greater impact we're talking about. That's right. And even though you have your number one superpower, as we've said, you know, all of these are skills, which means you can learn them. But more after this.
Cameron Katz, and this is Democracy Vibe Check. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Gabriel Cruz and Maggie Bell. Howdy. <laughs> I can't say howdy. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> howdy. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Um, thank you for that country moment from uh, Gabe. But now we're going to get into some civic season-themed questions that sort of represent the past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. Because us history folks love that kind of stuff. At Made By Us, you know, we're always starting with the past, always looking to history for inspiration. Um, So here's our first question. If you could experience a specific historical event, which would it be, why, and what actions would you take? Oh, that's easy for me. I think I'd go for the first Puerto Rican Day Parade in New York. Mm. A lot of, and in that time it was around in the 50s, a lot of Puerto Ricans were coming to New York to find better work. And uh, I think creating that sense of community for them while they were struggling to find uh, work and struggling to have some livelihood would be interesting to see. And I would, you know, I would get involved in trying to make it happen and have a better environment and see and create a better community for them. That's awesome. Yeah. What about you, Maggie? So I've always been moved by the Black Panther Party era, you know, like they were Mm. focused on um, the immediate needs of the community, the black community, and improving, you know, by providing resources and support to children and single mothers, black men. And you have to understand, like, during that time, the black community were asking for so much support and resources, like in the health field, politically, we didn't have a lot of representation. Mm-hmm. And the Black Panther Party came in and said, you know what, if the government isn't going to support us, the government isn't going to listen to us, we can legit mobilize and come together and provide each other with our needs and resources. Our economic philosophy is that we should gain control over the economy of our own community, the businesses and other things that create employment so that we can provide jobs for our own people instead of having to picket and boycott and beg someone else for a job. And in short, our social philosophy only means that we feel it is time to get together among our own kind and eliminate the evils that are destroying the moral fiber of our society. Like I just felt like that was super powerful, and if I could go back in time, I would definitely be in all black with my afro (laughs) and my fist up um, at the rallies and just standing in solidarity with them. What about you, Cameron? Yeah, this is this is a tough question for me, but I think for me, I would probably say the passage of the 19th Amendment, which is when women got the right to vote. And, you know, obviously the women's suffrage movement back then is a bit complex because it was not a super inclusive movement. You know, one historical figure that I just adore is Edna Fischel Gellhorn. And she was a Jewish woman in Missouri who was very involved in the women's suffrage movement. And she was really working to make it more inclusive of black women in particular, because, you know, there was a lot of racism in the movement at the time. So, you know, as a fellow Jewish woman, I would want to work with Edna and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and sort of help to make the movement inclusive of everyone. You know, I think that's an important part of the, the women's suffrage movement that sometimes gets left out. I think that context is, that we have now is, would have definitely been a lot more helpful in the past. Now a question about the present. So we here in the U.S. have a lot of traditions, you know, Fourth of July, baseball games, trick-or-treating on Halloween, summer barbecues. Yeah. Do y'all think 
that traditions can evolve? Or are they no longer traditions if we change how we celebrate? You know, I think that traditions can be fluid. You know, there are some things that we can keep the same, you know, that sort of make it feel like it's that time of year where, you know, you're setting off fireworks or you're having Thanksgiving turkey. But, you know, things change. And a lot of the context that we have about the United States is continuing to evolve. So I think our traditions should evolve with it. And that's, you know, one thing I love about civic season is it's sort of in response to what a lot of young people are feeling about the 4th of July. It's not really feeling like it's enough to um, engage with our country in the way that feels right anymore. And at the same time, you know, Juneteenth has sort of entered into the mainstream. Of course, Juneteenth has been celebrated, you know, long before it became better known across the United States. But I think linking together these two traditions is exactly what we need right now to bring together, as we say, like our promises and our practices. How can we have deeper engagement with both of these holidays? So for that reason, I think traditions can evolve. You know, I always am going to want to trick or treat on Halloween and, Mm -hmm. you know, get get the candy and all that. So shout out to everybody who gives full size candy bars on Halloween. Yeah, they're the real ones. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think there are some things we can keep the same with with knowledge that they can change, too. I feel like traditions should evolve, you know, especially if they're problematic. Like, for example, and I cannot say that this is a fact, but on New Year's, if popping all of these fireworks proves to be bad for the environment, the ozone layer. Yeah. Again, this is just an example. <laughs> then we should definitely be looking at those new, what are they, like robot fireworks that go out? The little the drones sk- that do the little patterns in the sky. Yes, yeah. we should be looking at that, right? Yeah, yeah. Or traditions that have just aged badly and can be seen as a threat to other communities. Like we're finding how old traditions aren't reflecting today's values. A perfect example could be, you know, how the Confederate soldiers are carved into Stone Mountain and the controversy surrounding that today. But Gabe, how do you feel about traditions evolving? Yeah, Maggie, I totally agree. I think traditions should reflect the values that we have as a society today. And I think while traditions are important to root us in our past and and understand our past society, I think they should still evolve and change and reflect the values that we have today. Last question, and this is actually my favorite question for the future. We're coming up on the 250th anniversary of the United States in 2026. But this anniversary is as much about looking at our past as it is about looking at our future. So, Gabriel, Cameron, what do you think the next 250 years in the U.S. should look like? The next 250 years in the U.S. should be more inclusive and more civically engaged. You know, civics isn't this one credit hour class that you take as an elective. It's something that us young people should get involved in. And I think with civic season, we're on our way to make a broader impact on the future. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, one thing I would like to see in the next 250 years, too, is more young people just leading the charge. You know, when we think back to 250 years ago, it was young men in their 20s who were really leading the creation of the United States. And I think we've lost that sort of youthful spirit a little bit. And certainly there are plenty of young people who are involved. I mean, we, we've seen that with the past two elections for sure, that young people really are turning up and voting and getting involved. 
But I think that the voice of young people should be included more. You know, one thing we like to say is at Made by Us is that young people are the future inheritors of our nation. And so they should be involved in sort of shaping it. And I think civic season is a great opportunity to do that. But there are lots of ways that these history institutions and our communities are working to center young people. And I think we should keep doing that. I honestly feel that in 250 years, everybody better be civically engaged. Mm -hmm. Like everybody should be tapped in. There's no way that we're in this time period now still fighting and we're seeing strides and we're seeing little wins and big wins that all of the work that we do as even like young organizers Mm -hmm. is just going to be in vain. Right. Um, And so, yeah, in 250 years, I see a lot of turnout, a lot of representation. I hope we're seeing that already with Gen Z, you know, like, as I said, with the elections, people are voting. This generation is super engaged. It's just it just looks different than it did traditionally. You know, people are really engaged on social media, like apps like TikTok have just created this explosion of political engagement and awareness. It's so much easier for ideas to spread and people to have conversation with people, you know, who are different than them. So I think we're on our way. I hope we are. <laughs> yeah, like like we said last week, you know, civic engagement isn't just voting, period. Mm-hmm. It's getting involved in voting and yeah. doing more things around your community and being more involved in, uh, in making change where you want to see it. Absolutely. We asked these same questions to a few of our Civic Season Design Fellows, a cohort of 18 to 30-year-olds helping to design Civic Season, as well as some friends of Democracy Vibe Check. Here's what they had to say. My name is Laura Dale. I'm a Civic Season Design Fellow this year with Made by Us, and I live in Wyoming, and I'm really excited to be part of Civic Season. So if I could experience any historical event Um, I have an archaeology background, and so the first things that came to mind were when the Lascaux Cave in France was being painted 17,000 years ago, like things about discovery. I think a more concrete example would be when Louisa Swain, who lived in Laramie, Wyoming, was the first woman to legally cast a ballot in the general election in the United States um, in 1870. The action that I would take is to step in line after her and cast my vote. You know, what a powerful moment to join in and just experience what was going on. My name is Katie Ronkin. I am a Civic Season Design Fellow. I live in Boston, Massachusetts. If I could experience a specific historical event, I would like to go back to 1977 and participate in the 504 sit-ins. Actually, the demonstration is going on throughout the entire nation, Washington, New York, Denver, here in San Francisco. It all started this morning here at the old federal building on 50 Fulton when an incident took place outside. Immediately after that demonstration this morning, the handicapped... So the federal government had passed the Rehabilitation Act, but was failing to enforce... Section 504, which would, you know, define what a disability is, define timelines for complying with the Rehabilitation Act enforcement. Basically, it was an act with no teeth. So disability rights activists protested at regional offices of health, education, and wellness around the country, but specifically in San Francisco, for 26 days, disability rights activists, most of them disabled themselves occupied that building and 
forced the country to see how the federal government had ignored, you know, disabled people. To be in that environment, to be able to, you know, be in community with other disabled people, with these activists, and experience the the fight and the spirit that they had, it would be kind of very special to witness. I feel a really strong connection with them in that time. My name is Eliana Pipes. I am a writer and filmmaker based in my hometown of Los Angeles. I think if I could experience a particular historical event or moment, I would want to go back to 1969, the year of so much sort of political transformation in our country. Particularly the new left movement in New York City has always been so exciting and fascinating to me. I went to college in New York and I learned about that sort of moment in our history for the first time while I was in the city that those events took place in, like walking down the same blocks. And particularly there's a group called the Young Lords Party. The Young Lords were a coalition of black and Puerto Rican activists who were organizing in East Harlem. To the United States, we came to learn how to misspell our name, to lose the definition of pride, to have misfortune on our side, to be trained to turn on television sets, to dream about jobs you will never get, to fill out welfare applications, to graduate from school without an education, to be drafted, distorted, and destroyed, to work full time and still be unemployed. And I am so enchanted by the work that they did. And I really appreciate that they were an integrated group of Black and Latinos organizing together across sort of racial and ethnic lines and showing a level of solidarity that I think was really powerful and that I would love to see more of today. I'm Black, White, and Puerto Rican. My mother's Black and Puerto Rican, so I always get really excited to see sort of intra-community solidarity between Black and Latino communities. And the Lords kicked off so many things that made such a huge difference for our country, and so I think that's a moment that I would want to go back to. Hi, everyone. I'm Dylan Bernard, a cultural strategist who really believes in the power of storytelling and narratives. My main focus has always been on amplifying young and multicultural voices. Yeah, if I could experience one specific historical event, I think a lot about the March on Washington and just the power of gathering of, of people and voices around a significant and powerful, you know, world-changing event. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's something I think a lot about is just these moments in history that set off a path for, you know, even me to do my work today. So that's a moment that I think a lot about um, as something I would love to experience. And I also think about the key, you know, movement architects um, who are behind that, you know, the Bayard Rustins of the world who are instrumental in it, but who are more so behind the scenes. It's become clear to me that we all have a role in the movement. It's not just, again, the folks with the bullhorns. It's everybody on deck um, to, to do this work. I think that traditions can evolve, and I actually think that evolution is part of tradition. It can feel like refuting what used to be, but I think that part of what makes something a tradition is that it stays alive in the here and now and in the present day, and I think that there are plenty of things that can transform. 
I think that tradition and transformation can go hand in hand and that the best way to honor something is to bring it into the present day and to make it as relevant as we can. Hi, my name is Liviera Lim. I am a performer, writer, and educator that's based in the Los Angeles area. I think traditions definitely can evolve and I think they should evolve because when I think about the purpose of tradition, for me, it's to be able to honor our past and the people in our past, but also to be able to build and be in community. So in that way, I think traditions almost have to evolve. I am of Chinese heritage. I have a lot of Chinese blood in me because my grandparents, for the most part, were from China. And one of the big celebrations that I had growing up was Chinese New Year. But I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and so my Chinese New Year celebrations looked very different from my grandparents. And my parents' Chinese New Year celebrations also looked different from their parents because they didn't grow up in China. My parents grew up in Indonesia. And so our community was made up of people who were Asian Americans, who had immigrated also from Indonesia, but who were also of Chinese descent. And it would have been really different than how people celebrate in China. I think the evolution of the way that we celebrated Lunar New Year was one of the most beautiful things about being able to celebrate it every single year. When it comes to traditions in the U.S., one of the things in the question that was mentioned was baseball games. Baseball, I thought, was a really great example because right now they've just introduced the pitch clock. You know, the commissioner MLB realized that games were too long. What's so great about the pitch clock is that even though they've you know, shorten the time, and people were worried that it was going to change the feeling of baseball. When you go to a ballpark, when you watch baseball, when you're supporting your team, it feels just exactly the same. You know, the spirit of baseball is still there. I'm a Red Sox fan. So going to Fenway Park, it feels the same. You still are able to relax. You're still able to be in community with your other, your fellow fans. But it's just bringing more people in. I think that the next 250 years in the United States should make waves. I think it should disrupt the status quo because the past 250 have certainly done that. I believe that our country would be shocking for the founding fathers to see today. And I hope the same is true if we were to look 250 years into the future. When I think about the future, I am actually really hopeful. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for connectivity, for caring for one another. As you think upon the 25th anniversary of the United States, I think what the future should and has to look like for the betterment of all of us is a intergenerational movement. It has to also be cross-movement. I think a lot of our the movements that we think about just naturally are so segmented. It's like we're fighting for this thing over here, we're fighting for that thing over there, but a lot of this is really reliant on us to gather at this, this very messy middle and really figure out and come together. Thanks to Eliana Pipes, Dylan Bernard, Katie Ronkin, Laura Dale, and Liviera Lim for sharing with us. So we talked a lot about amplifying today, right? And I know at the beginning of this episode, we talked a little bit about how we can all work on our amplifying skills. So how are you all going to do that? I think I'm going to be more intentional with the information that is out there and making sure 
that my people know what's going on. Um, I'm already that type of person, but I feel like I don't want to do it just by scrolling and seeing what's like a post on Instagram and then resharing it. Mm. Um, I want to go beyond that and share like my own takes from the situation that's happening. It's always good to add your own voice as, you know, your own perspective is context too. So Mm -hmm. I love to hear that. What about you, Gabe? And my civic engagement is going to be resharing all of your posts. Yeah. (laughs) From Gabe, that was a shameless plug to follow Made By Us on wherever you're on social media. And our handle is at History Made By Us. But also consider this your reminder that we are planning a special episode featuring all of your voices. You, the listeners, tell us how you're using your civic superpower this summer and what your plans are for civic season. To get in on that, click on the Share with Civic Season link in the show notes to see all the ways you can add your voice to the conversation. So what's on tap for the next episode? Saludos a nuestros oyentes. Estoy muy emocionado porque en el próximo episodio vamos a explorar Presente, a Latino History of the United States, una exhibición del Museo Nacional del Latino Estadounidense, un poco en español and a little in English. That's an exploration of Presente at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino. Democracy Vibe Check is a co-production of Made by Us and WABE. Our producer is Kevin Rinker, additional producing and editing from Scotty Crow with original music by Matt Owen. To get your civic season started, build your list of activities at theCivicSeason.com. And if you want to keep up with all things civic season, be sure to follow at History Made by Us on social media. Special thanks to Caroline Klibanoff, Kate Doak-Kessler, Nia Mosby, the 2023 Civic Season Design Fellows, and the Atlanta History Center. W-A-B-E.